Section 25 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Thursday, March 8, 1906. Letter from brother of Captain Tom Cray. Mr. Clemens replied that original of Huckleberry Finn was Tom Blankenship. Tom's father, town drunkard. Describes Tom's character. Death of Indian Joe. Storm which came that night. Incident of the Episcopal Sextons and their reforms. Mr. Dawson's school in Hannibal. Arch Fuqua's greatest gifts. For thirty years I have received an average of a dozen letters a year from strangers who remember me, or whose fathers remember me as boy and young man. But these letters are almost always disappointing. I have not known these strangers, nor their fathers. I have not heard of the names they mention. The reminiscences to which they call my attention have had no part in my experience, all of which means that these strangers have been mistaking me for somebody else. But at last I have the refreshment this morning of a letter from a man who deals in names that were familiar to me in my boyhood. The writer encloses a newspaper clipping which has been wandering through the press for four or five weeks, and he wants to know if his brother, Captain Tancray, was really the original of Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn dead, original of Mark Twain's famous character, had led quiet life in Idaho, by direct wire to the Times, Wallace, Idaho, February 2nd exclusive dispatch. Captain A. O. Tancray, commonly known as Huckleberry Finn, said to be the original of Mark Twain's famous character, was found dead in his room at Murray this morning from heart failure. Captain Tancray, a native of Hannibal, Missouri, was sixty-five years old. In early life he ran on steamboats on the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers, in frequent contact with Samuel L. Clemens, and, tradition has it, Mark Twain later used Tancray as his model for Huckleberry Finn. He came to Murray in 1884, and had been living a quiet life since. I have replied that Huckleberry Finn was Tom Blankenship. As this writer evidently knew the Hannibal of the forties, he will easily recall Tom Blankenship. Tom's father was at one time town drunkard, an exceedingly well-defined and unofficial office of those days. He succeeded General. I forget the General's name. Note Gaines. And for a time he was sole and only incumbent of the office. But afterward, Jimmy Finn proved competency and disputed the place with him. So we had two town drunkards at one time, and it made as much trouble in that village as Christendom experienced in the fourteenth century when there were two 
popes at the same time. In Huckleberry Finn I have drawn Tom Blankenship exactly as he was. He was ignorant, unwashed, insufficiently fed, but he had as good a heart as ever any boy had. His liberties were totally unrestricted. He was the only really independent person, boy or man, in the community, and by consequence he was tranquilly and continuously happy, and was envied by all the rest of us. We liked him. We enjoyed his society, and as his society was forbidden us by our parents, the prohibition trebled and quadrupled its value, and therefore we sought and got more of his society than of any other boys. I heard four years ago that he was justice of the peace in a remote village in Montana and was a good citizen and greatly respected. During Jimmy Finn's term he was not exclusive, he was not finical, he was not hypercritical, he was largely and handsomely democratic, and slept in the deserted tanyard with the hogs. My father tried to reform him once, but did not succeed. My father was not a professional reformer. In him the spirit of reform was spasmodic. It only broke out now and then, with considerable intervals between. Once he tried to reform Injun Joe. That also was a failure. It was a failure, and we boys were glad. For Injun Joe, drunk, was interesting, and a benefaction to us, but Injun Joe, sober, was a dreary spectacle. We watched my father's experiments upon him with a good deal of anxiety, but it came out all right, and we were satisfied. Injun Joe got drunk oftener than before, and became intolerably interesting. I think that in Tom Sawyer I starved Injun Joe to death in the cave, but that may have been to meet the exigencies of romantic literature. I can't remember now whether the real Injun Joe died in the cave or out of it, but I do remember that the news of his death reached me at a most unhappy time, that is to say, just at bedtime on a summer night, when a prodigious storm of thunder and lightning accompanied by a deluging rain that turned the streets and lanes into rivers caused me to repent and resolve to lead a better life. I can remember those awful thunderbursts and the white glare of the lightning yet, and the wild lashing of the rain against the window-panes. By my teachings I perfectly well knew what all that wild rumpus was for. Satan had come to get Injun Joe. I had no shadow of doubt about it. It was the proper thing when a person like Injun Joe was required in the underworld, 
and I should have thought it strange and unaccountable if Satan had come for him in a less spectacular way. With every glare of lightning I shriveled and shrank together in mortal terror, and in the interval of black darkness that followed I poured out my lamentings over my lost condition and my supplications for just one more chance, with an energy and feeling and sincerity quite foreign to my nature. But in the morning I saw that it was a false alarm, and concluded to resume business at the old stand and wait for another reminder. The axiom says, history repeats itself. A week or two ago my nephew, by marriage, Edward Loomis, dined with us, along with his wife, my niece, nay Julie Langdon. He is vice-president of the Delaware and Lackawanna railway system. The duties of his office used to carry him frequently to Elmira, New York. The exigencies of his courtship carried him there still oftener, and so in the course of time he came to know a good many of the citizens of that place. At dinner he mentioned a circumstance which flashed me back over about sixty years and landed me in that little bedroom on that tempestuous night. He said Mr. Buckley was sexton of the Episcopal Church in Elmira, and had been for many years the competent superintendent of all the church's worldly affairs, and was regarded by the whole congregation as a stay, a blessing, a priceless treasure. But he had a couple of defects, not large defects, but they seemed large when flung against the background of his profoundly religious character. He drank a good deal, and he could outswear a brakeman. A movement arose to persuade him to lay aside these vices, and after consulting with his pal, who occupied the same position as himself in the other Episcopal church, and whose defects were duplicates of his own, and had inspired regret in the congregation whom he was serving, they concluded to try for reform, not wholesale, but half at a time. They took the liquor pledge and waited for results. During nine days the results were entirely satisfactory, and they were recipients of many compliments and much congratulation. Then, on New Year's Eve, they had business a mile and a half out of town, just beyond the New York state line. Everything went well with them that evening in the bar-room of the inn, but at last the celebration of the occasion by those villagers came to be of a burdensome nature. It was a bitter cold night, and the multitudinous hot toddies that were circulating began, by and by, to exert a powerful influence upon the new prohibitionists. At last Buckley's friend remarked, Buckley, does it occur to you that we are 
outside the diocese? That ended reform number one. Then they took a chance in reform number two. For a while that one prospered, and they got much applause. One morning this step-nephew of mine, Loomis, met Buckley on the street and said, You have made a gallant struggle against those defects of yours. I am aware that you failed on number one, but I am also aware that you are having better luck with number two. Yes, Buckley said, number two is all right and sound up to date, and we are full of hope. Loomis said, Buckley, of course you have your troubles like other people, but they never show on the outside. I have never seen you when you were not cheerful. Are you always cheerful? Really always cheerful? Well, no, he said. No, I can't say that I am always cheerful, but, well, you know that kind of a night that comes, you wake up way in the night, and the whole world is sunk in gloom, and there are storms and earthquakes and all sorts of disasters in the air, threatening, and you get cold and chill, and when that happens to me, I recognize how sinful I am, and it goes all clear to my heart and rings it, and I have such terrors and terrors. Oh, they are indescribable, those terrors that assail and thrill me, and I slip out of bed and get on my knees and pray and pray and pray, and promise that I will be good, etc., and then, you know, in the morning, the sun shines out so lovely, and the birds sing, and the whole world is so beautiful, and, but God, I rally. Now, I will quote a brief paragraph from this letter which I received from Mr. Tonkray. He says, You no doubt are at a loss to know who I am. I will tell you. In my younger days I was a resident of Hannibal, Missouri, and you and I were schoolmates attending Mr. Dawson's school, along with Sam and Will Bowen and Andy Fuqua and others whose names I have forgotten. I was then about the smallest boy in school for my age, and they called me Little Alec Tancray for short. I don't remember Alec Tancre, but I knew those other people as well as I knew the town drunkards. I remember Dawson's schoolhouse perfectly. If I wanted to describe it, I could save myself the trouble by conveying the description of it to those pages from Tom Sawyer. I can remember the drowsy and inviting summer sounds that used to float in through the open windows from that distant boy-paradise Cardiff Hill, and mingle with the murmurs of the studying pupils, and make them the more dreary by the contrast. I remember Andy Fuqua, the oldest pupil, a man of twenty-five. 
I remember the youngest pupil, Nanny Owsley, a child of seven. I remember George Robards, eighteen or twenty years old, the only pupil who studied Latin. I remember, vaguely, the rest of the twenty-five boys and girls. I remember Mr. Dawson very well. I remember his boy Theodore, who was as good as he could be. In fact, he was inordinately good, extravagantly good, offensively good, detestably good, and he had pop-eyes, and I would have drowned him if I had had a chance. In that school we were all about on an equality, and, so far as I remember, the passion of envy had no place in our hearts except in the case of Arch Fuqua, the other one's brother. Of course, we all went barefoot in the summertime. Arch Fuqua was about my own age, ten or eleven. In the winter we could stand him, because he wore shoes then, and his great gift was hidden from our sight, and we were enabled to forget it. But in the summer he was a bitterness to us. He was our envy, for he could double back his big toe and let it fly, and you could hear it snap thirty yards. There was not another boy in the school that could approach this feat. He had not a rival as regards a physical distinction, except in Theodore Eddy, who could work his ears like a horse. But he was no real rival, because you couldn't hear him work his ears. So all the advantage lay with Arch Fuqua. End of section 25, Thursday, March 8, 1906.